0: And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy Mullins in Melbourne. And I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio today, Kerry O'Brien, who is uh, the winner of six Walkley Awards, including a gold Walkley for Leadership in Journalism. He has had a career that spanned over 50 years as a journalist, uh, predominantly in television and also in print. And uh, he was the host, the inaugural host of Late Line for six years, the host of 7.30 Report for 15 years and the host of Four Corners for five years. And uh, I welcome Kerry now. Hi there. Amy, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah, you are doing a pretty um, big tour for this book, which is Carrie O'Brien, A Memoir. And um, I really like the way that you've approached this book, which is to talk about your life through your career and also through history and the way that you've witnessed history. And um, you talk about the fact that you were born... In 1945, which is at the end of World War Two, and therefore you've really witnessed this key post-World War Two period, particularly the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Then, of course, so many prime ministers have come and gone in that time, so many opposition leaders and uh, and other leaders. We've seen quite a lot of churn, and so naturally, this book is quite long.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the um, the other big. Um uh, element of the post-war years, of course, is uh, is the digital transformation uh, throughout the world, um, and uh, and working as a journalist, particularly in broadcasting, really, I've been in the eye of the storm. I mean, many people have been in the eye of various storms, uh, because this is an age that's utterly unprecedented. Change uh, is taking place in an incredibly rapid and intense way, mm. to a point where uh, the one thing we really know with any certainty. Uh, is that the, that pace of change is only going to get faster. It's become harder and harder for us to pre- predict the future and therefore plan for it. And I think sometimes the defence position uh, of politicians is therefore not to talk about it much at all, other than in very broad general terms, when in fact there's a huge debate to be had on a number of fronts.
0: Mm, that's an excellent point. And it reminds me of a very particular debate that highlights this around uh, the NBN the National Broadband mm. Network, and we saw uh, Kevin Rudd come out with a very audacious program to create fibre to the premises. Uh, he had a very significant, I think it was forty three billion dollar uh, right. policy that he's put forward. And then we saw Tony Abbott come out with his proposal, which was a mix of a whole range of technologies, particularly utilising our pre-existing copper network and that it would be fibre to the node. And I remember a particular interview of yours where Tony Abbott was uh, really put on the spot, clearly didn't know his technical Mm. uh, detail. And uh, he he said, oh, we don't want to put all your eggs in the fibre basket and that I'm no tech head. And and then you proceeded to explain peak speed to him.
1: Yeah, because uh, and I I uh, had a suspicion that he uh, might not be actually across the complexities of the issue because it was one of the few launches of policy during that election campaign in 2010 that he stayed away from. Mm. Uh, so I took particular interest in that policy, which was, and I think has demonstrated since, was an inferior policy to the one that Rudd had uh, had begun to implement. And, uh, yeah, he he tried to write off his ignorance on this issue, uh, and the concept of peak speed was a pretty easy one to grasp. Even I could grasp that. And uh, he did make a bit of a fool of himself on that occasion.
0: Mm. It seemed to me to highlight one of the key differences and one of the reasons why people got behind Kevin Rudd initially, which was that we had had so many years of conservatism and John Howard that... A lot of younger people, I think, were crying out for a visionary leader who had a plan that was future-looking instead of just of the present. Mm. Would you agree with that assessment?
1: Oh, I think, uh, I think he certainly uh, he caught people's imagination, and there was a sense of freshness about him, and he was. Uh, I, I suspect that he had borrowed fairly substantially from the Whitlam approach, which was to come up with big programs. Uh, to have a rationale for those programs and excite people's imagination and uh, and the um, NBN the whole broadband issue was one of them and there was the he was going to put a computer in every classroom in high schools uh, there were a whole and of course climate change identified climate change as the great moral issue of our time which indeed it was but then of course that was one of the things that came back to bite him on the bum when uh, when <coughs> the politics became more awkward for him uh, after the failure of the Copenhagen uh, conference on climate change and he had pinned so much stock in that because the other side was saying if the rest of the world doesn't get its act together why should we and uh, instead of meeting that head on after Copenhagen and, uh, and when uh, Malcolm Turnbull was replaced as leader by Tony Abbott and if there was one thing Tony Abbott was very very good at it was the, it was the politics of negativity you know, it was, uh, it was the endless pursuit of uh, Kevin Rudd and the Labor government, and, uh, but, but reduced to very simplistic terms. No new taxes, um, no arrivals by boat, and so on. And, uh, and I think uh, Rudd was under pressure from within his own party, Julia Gillard. Gillard, it seems, was saying to him, you've got to walk back from this. And he succumbed to that, which was the great fatal political mistake of his career. Yes. The public would not wear that. You know, you don't say in the one breath, this is the great moral issue of our time and then in the next breath say, well, we're just going to, we did have this plan but we're just going to put it off for another three years and we'll revisit it. Exactly. Didn't work.
0: No, and he did really set up Copenhagen as a make-or-break moment and he and Penny Wong were over there really trying to act as a middle country to negotiate.
1: And in fairness to them, they earned the respect of the, the others around that table, that big international table, including Obama, mm. uh, because they worked tirelessly to get that up and uh, uh, then when it all came crashing around their ears, uh, they, they were left a little bit like the Emperor's New Clothes.
0: Yes, and that brings me to one of the other key interviews you've done which has forever stuck out in my mind and it certainly did reveal Kevin Rudd, The Human, because when he came back from Copenhagen and you really did highlight the fact that this is the greatest moral challenge of our time, you've said that, and now um, what are you going to do with hmm. this ETS? And he basically got so angry and so upset that he said, you know, you don't know how hard Penny Wong and I worked. And it was just this moment of a crack in the...
1: the, the 7.30 report land comment. Yeah. You, you sit here in 7.30 report land like it was some kind of oxygen tank. But um, uh, two things about that. The first is that, that uh, when he did make the U-turn on climate change, he was suddenly unavailable to be interviewed. And Penny Wong, his minister, had to come out and cop it on the chin, as she knew she would. Mm. And uh, I did an interview. I tried to get him. He couldn't come or wouldn't come. Penny Wong came on. She was like the sacrificial lamb. And she knew what was ahead. It was a tough interview. She didn't fear. I mean, you know, I think Penny Wong did as best she could. But I filed that one away and I thought um, this is this is a crack of weakness in your armour. Mm. You should have been out front uh, wearing this yourself and explaining it yourself. So I made a little pact with myself that the next time he was available to come on he might have thought we'd moved on from climate change but in fact I hadn't. And, uh, and so there was a quite tough interview there. That's the first point. The second point is that I actually thought that that interview would work for him rather than against him when, I, when we saw him actually display that kind of emotion uh, and that kind of almost automaton Rudd, you know, the, the guy who was never short of a word mm. and who was always very even-tempered in his pitch um, suddenly did show that kind of... He stepped out of that... Not quite... Re- it's unfair to him to say robotic, but he, but he stepped away for one moment from his very controlled pitch... And was showing a side to Kevin Rudd that I would have thought some people might have found a little bit reassuring. He really was like the rest of us, uh, but um, but uh, a number of the media, possibly just uh, looking for a headline, uh, painted that as if he'd as if it was some kind of failure on his mm. part. And that's one of the things that's wrong with with politics these days. Uh, politicians are not allowed to show uh, uh, any kind of uh, a variation of, of of what we come to believe is their persona um, we want it always really as journalists we want perfection but we kind of want we, we want not quite perfect and if there's a ripple of excitement we'll just we'll just go for the moment and go for the headline and not really analyze it necessarily as we should mm. that was a terrible generalization in a way there are some fantastic journalists functioning today but but it's the 24-hour news churn, you know, where everyone's scrabbling to fill the space and not necessarily thinking with the depth and having the time to think with the depth that they once did. Yeah. I thought that was overcooked, the response to Rudd that time.
0: No, I, I certainly didn't see it as a negative when I was watching it. I was just taken aback by really? just how he was. Showing himself as a real human being. Yeah, <laughs> so rare. Not Mr Perfect. Exactly. And certainly... No one thinks he was perfect, and I know there were many cabinet ministers who certainly didn't think that way. But you do highlight in the book the fact that there were some key public servants who were being slightly more generous towards Kevin Rudd upon reflection Mm. um, in the Killing Season documentary. I wonder how unfair we have been towards Kevin Rudd in terms of the spill that occurred and and his behaviour.
1: Look, it's a pity he hasn't moved on um, um, more uh, he waited a long time to bring his two-volume autobiography out and uh, and in this most recent one uh, he says it was a very small part of the overall book but of course it was the first part of the book the journalists went to. And the bitterness you can see, the bitterness is still there. It's time for him to move on on that front. But um, uh, I, w- whether we all treated Kevin Rudd unfairly is not the point. I, I, I think the real issue is how much of what was claimed against him was a genuinely accurate picture of Kevin Rudd behind the scenes and it's not only senior public servants who saw things somewhat differently from uh, say Julia Gillard and some of her supporters in that coup Um, uh, I can think of at least one very senior highly respected uh, Labour politician who sat around that cabinet table through the Rudd years and told me that yes it was true that some senior people including you know heads of defence force and so on were kept waiting at times for hours to see him, uh, which was not good, uh, but that he actually ran quite an efficient cabinet process and was consultative around that cabinet table, uh, and this is a person I'm inclined to believe. Hmm. Uh, so yes, there were faults, um, obviously, and he—I think he was handicapped by a very young office. These were really talented people, but they were—they—but in their youth, their relative youth, there was also some inexperience and at times a lack of wisdom, the kind of wisdom that only comes with earning the scars along the way. And uh, and that was a part of the issue. Now, you know, you, you don't necessarily... I, I don't think you blame them. You've got to... Th- this was Rudd's decision to have that kind of office, and there was, um, within his office staff, there was no wise old head for most of the time, and I think that was a part of the problem for him. I also think that um, it was deeply ill-advised... Uh, for Gillard to um, to actually uh, listen to those people who were urging her to come along on the course that they then chose. And, uh, and I think uh, that's a part of her legacy too.
0: I agree. And it's something that I don't think is acknowledged at all at the moment.
1: Well, uh, it came at a huge price for Labor mm. and a huge price uh, for people who had put their faith uh, in the Rudd government and uh And I think that personal ambition, uh, personal ambitions and uh, and some people's egos uh, who felt that Kevin Rudd wasn't paying them their due, due uh, attention, I think they got it, got in the way and uh, and then, of course, Gillard herself uh, was turfed, and Rudd came back, and at least one of the same people uh, who had been a part of the process of installing Gillard was then a part of the process of uh, her destruction. Uh, And that was Bill Shorten. Yes. So, you know, that was a terrible time for Labor. uh, And I think it's one chapter in the book, but it's a fascinating chapter to me because the patterns that emerge from it uh, in in the kind of concentrated, easy to follow really, Mm. but nonetheless concentrated way that that three years uh, is covered.
0: Yes, and it's had many consequences, not only for Labor but for the Liberal Party, as we've seen. It's become more palatable or acceptable for this kind of thing to happen. Well, no, to neither, neither
1: palatable uh, <laughs> nor acceptable in the eyes of the public. No, no, I but, mean to But it's like because the precedent was there, mm. oh, well, we can do that too because Abbott is uh, falling in a hole. Uh, uh, when, when they did actually throw Abbott out and install Malcolm Turnbull for his second stint as leader, You could almost hear a collective sigh of relief around the nation at the (laughs) departure of Abbott. Uh, And I think that uh, had he gone to an election, that is Turnbull, gone to an election almost immediately after taking the leadership with that uh, kind of extraordinarily impressive performance in the courtyard when he announced his candidacy, candidacy for the leadership, I think a significant number of Labor voters would have taken a deep breath and voted for him. Um, but then, uh, but then he became a disappointment as well. Uh, then now we've got Scott Morrison, you know, and mm. uh, and it's like it's like uh, where are the people in this? That of the last five prime ministers to be dispatched, four have been dispatched by their own party, mm. and only one, the people, have only been allowed <laughs> to exercise their democratic right and dispatch one prime minister of the last five. Which is an appalling indictment on our political system.
0: Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned Scott Morrison. Uh, he seems to me quite a retail politician in a way, and he's emphasising that by conducting bus tours and well, sort of, sort
1: <laughs> of bus tours, ish, ish. bus ish. plane tours,
0: <laughs> <laughs> hybrid. And for, the,
1: for one f- moment, suddenly the image of Billy McMahon swept before my eyes. Oh, that all the yes. way back in 1982, and. Uh, Whitlam dubbed him Silly Billy. <laughs> I, I think that was one low point in Australian political history: the McMahon years, where the mm. Liberal Party was starting to come apart at the seams, and he became this caricature. And he was—he became very accident-prone, Billy McMahon. And I just—I uh, just—I just thought the Liberal, the, the the government, had a McMahon moment around the bus trip.
0: Yes. Well, you do mention in other interviews about our grasp of our history. And this book highlights that in the sense that, as you say, there are patterns and things that repeat themselves over time. And
1: because if, we forget it. Yeah. We forget the mistakes.
0: We don't reflect and we don't remember. Mm. And you did mention that, obviously, with journalists, it's much harder to have that time for adequate reflection mm. with a 24-hour news cycle and different um, commercial demands, particularly mm. in the commercial media. Is there that potential for reflection because your time at Late Line you say was very important to you and you said that the highlight of the 90s for me will always be Late Line my 6 years with Late Line were as close as I've come to perfection in half a century of journalism hmm. and that really was a long form version of journalism where you had your entire focus on one one really important issue for
1: half an hour yeah and half an hour of television is like uh, you know four hours of reading, if you like. Um, it can be an intrinsically superficial medium and very hard to get below the surface and build some depth. But, uh, but with that program, I know some people thought it was a luxury. I didn't. I mean, mm. uh, that program was gold uh, as, as, as a forum for quality discussion. And the fact that we were able to focus on a single issue for an entire half hour whether we were interviewing three people, two people, or one person, uh, we would set the, set the issue up we would we would explain its complexity where it was complex in a very short five or six minute piece and then the rest was straight discussion and thanks to the the dawning of the age of the satellite, we were able to tour the world and and access some of the great minds of our time, whether it was politics, whether it was uh, philosophy, whether it was history, whether it was uh uh, discussions about the digital age and 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 how and the social impact it was having, uh, whether it was with some of the great artists of our time. I mean, somebody, somebody like the the great Oliver Sacks. He was a a psychiatrist, but he was also a beautiful writer. He was a visionary in his field. He was a great humanist. Uh, he he t- he told the story of mental illness in a in a wonderfully uh, imaginative way that actually brought us close to understanding it, but but actually seeing beyond the, the, that, that part of it that people shrink back from and seeing the real human beings behind it and the kind of gifts that they often had to make up for the debilitating uh, mental affliction that they had. Uh, and this guy was just a gem. And, and and we were getting access to people like him in their various disciplines week after week after week. It was wonderful. Yes. And the, and the, audi- you, the audience loved it, you know, I mean... <laughs> We had, we had well over a million people in Australia who regarded themselves as late line regulars even though each night might have only attracted 400,000. Mm. Across the week easily more than a million people we were reaching easily uh, and, uh, and I just think it's a, a, a travesty that the ABC has turned its back on that program.
0: Yes. Well, it was groundbreaking. And I did watch the first episode on YouTube. Ah. And I was amazed um, at the, the three different television screens in front of you with the different guests. But your introduction, you say, welcome to Late Line, a program that promises something new in Australian television. You s- prefacing the fact that this is a, a big deal and we've since seen late line axed mm. and many people outraged over that including myself because mm. i think it did offer something quite unique although as we can see based on your original format it certainly did veer away from it that it
1: became more of a news format whereas mm. we had a five there was a 5 minute late news that sat outside the program then we came to our well defined half hour and uh, and so uh, it it became a kind of uh, a wonderful, wonderfully stimulating escape for people. Or, I mean, it was very funny. One of the most common reactions I used to have was people who would say, "Well, Kerry, you know, great, love the show." But um, uh, often I would get up to go to bed, and I'd just flick across to uh, to the ABC to just see what you were going to talk about. And half an hour later, I'd realise. <laughs> you know, I was still there, uh, and that was the nature of the show. You know, it actually drew people in, and it mm-hmm. gave them something. They actually felt that had a bit of a meal. Um, so, I, I just uh, I puzzle over how people can make assumptions that because we are in this digital age of social media and many platforms of delivery, that, um, that there's an assumption behind it that people are, are no longer interested. In that kind of depth in their busy lives, I would have thought we needed that kind of reflection yeah. more than ever.
0: I would agree, and certainly on this show we get the biggest response for longer, more in-depth and yes. nuanced discussions.
1: Yeah. yeah, and because that did come uh, towards the end of the day, um, and for many people it was the kind of signal of uh, I'll watch late now and then I'll go to bed. <laughs> it was it was actually rounding out their day, even rounding out their week. It was giving them, it was giving them the chance to reflect. Mm, yeah. It was actually giving them permission, and, w- and many people do feel that they, they are running so hard for most of their lives that to actually stop is a, kind of, is a kind of weakness, which is very sad. And Late Line gave them permission to stop and listen and mm. watch and reflect. And when we stop reflecting, we're buggered.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it was really a mental respite a place where one could rest their mind and kind of... Well, they weren't
1: resting their mind. They were were resting those things that were taxing their mind. Yes. And they were opening it up to something else entirely.
0: Yeah, I, I guess that's the point, is relaxing. And being open mm. to new things, and you said that the true strength of journalism is it if it's informative and enlightening, and I think that is certainly what Late Line was, and uh, and also I think the Seven Thirty Report, but just in a very different way. And one of the things that I just wonder about, you were there for fifteen years, <laughs> and you do say in the book, well, John Howard did take up a significant portion of those fifteen. He did. Good or bad. But I, I did also look back at some of those interviews and I could see your point about the fact that he did take up the space and try to create much longer. Answers in order to deflect some of the criticism that you were angling at him, hmm. but how did you manage to direct a range of those guests, particularly politicians, who are likely to go on and on and try and get their point across when you're actually trying to r- reveal something
1: well i'm just trying to i 'm just trying to uh, have an honest exchange f- for the public's benefit hmm. and uh, i mean what what they understood about seven thirty was that um, in a half hour, which might feature a minimum of three, usually at least four, occasionally five uh, items, that there would be a limit in the time that we could allow for the interview. And that was a constant kind of struggle within the program. And uh, uh, certainly for for John Howard, um, I wouldn't have considered anything less than 10 minutes as giving me any chance at all, to keep him Mm -hmm. honest. and uh, and sometimes they'd be twelve, thirteen, and occasionally fifteen. And uh, uh, sometimes we would do the whole program if it was important enough. You can still chew up the time. The time is still going incredibly fast. And uh, yeah. and the press secretaries would always say, "So how long's the interview?" <laughs> and you would say, "You know, twelve minutes or whatever, ten minutes, nine minutes." And they would plan uh, where they would talk long. Um, and John Howard was very good at that. I mean, a lot of other politicians did the same thing. Chew up the time. Yeah. If you're defensive, if you feel that you're in a defensive position, chew up the time. That was just one of the ways in which politicians would try to manipulate. Uh, the, and, and while chewing up the time, one of the ways they chewed up the time was to constantly and remorselessly repeat their message. Yes. The message of the day, you know, the propaganda item of the day. Mm. Howard was the past master at that. And it didn't take you long to work out what their message of the day was.
0: Yes. Well, one particular interview that stuck out to me was in 2007 when he was on the nose and uh, was up against Kevin Rudd. And your first interview with him, he had announced tax cuts. Campaign. Yes. Yeah. And was saying, you know, the Australian people have earned tax cuts. We've modelled these so that we'll get the greatest workforce participation. This is great for the economy. And you were saying the only reason why you can give these tax cuts is because of a, a strong resources sector, Chinese investment and interest in our, our minerals, and he then went on and on and on about the fact that that was not the only foundation of our economy for a very long time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he also had, uh, he also had uh, ways of uh, making it more difficult for the interviewer to jump into a gap in the answer, if he was going on too long, jump into a gap in the answer to move it on to the next question or to come back to the question he wasn't asking, wasn't answering. Yeah. And I noticed at one point for a, quite a while there he would roll uh, between the, let's say, the, the last word of one sentence straight into the first word of the next sentence so that two words basically became one with no full stop in the middle. <laughs> uh, and it seemed to me that there was only one reason for this aberration and that was to, because your, your automatic way of, you, you might be sitting there waiting to come back in, hmm. you would normally wait for the end of a sentence. So John Howard would roll his sentences together and then he'd pause for a breath halfway through the next sentence, uh, I suspect, hoping that you wouldn't you 'd be taken a little bit by surprise by surprise by his pause there, and mm. you would miss the opportunity to jump in so, <laughs> so <laughs> it was very much a cat and mouse game, I must say and was and, he
0: one of the better at that would you say well,
1: he did cat and mouse very well uh, he, he had a kind of if you again another another pattern that emerges not just through interviews but just through the way he would comport himself as prime minister around issues like uh, asylum seekers or um, um, Various other, like the the black armband view of history, the the so-called culture wars, and so on, uh, he would he would very carefully work his words uh, around the tricky parts of those issues. And uh, f- as a for instance, when Pauline Hanson made her first made her maiden speech, where she revealed her true colours and uh, basically went after Asians, uh, mm-hmm. on Asian migration and. Um, and uh, uh, on Indigenous Australians, and when John Howard was asked, as the furor mounted and uh, we were being judged harshly around Southeast Asia, particularly, uh, and even John Howard's own senior cabinet ministers were telling him that he must, he should speak more firmly about it, he was asked, "So, do you support um, Pauline Hanson's views?" And he, and instead of saying no. I find them deplorable. I deplore racism. He simply said, "Well, I certainly, uh, I certainly support her right to say them." So he was avoiding being seen to attack her directly because he did not want to put her supporters offside because they were cons- they were conservative people and he wanted them back in his tent. And uh, and the fact that he was not genuinely and seriously offended by the sentiment of what she was saying. Uh, and he had a he had a responsibility to lead the nation on that, and he didn't.
0: Yeah, yes. Well, the prime minister sets the tone and the the example in terms of moral and ethical yes, standards. You would hope. You would. One of the things that you mentioned uh, just earlier, and you said that TV can be quite a superficial medium, and you brought up right at the beginning of the book, a very important point, which I I admit I had been wondering. Is
1: that right? I
0: had because I just admired it so much. But you say, let me get the really big news out of the way up front. I have never dyed my hair and it's not a wig.
1: (laughs) Which part did you wonder about? The dye dye, dye or the wig? The dye.
0: It looks very real. I, I used to have copper hair myself, but not natural, obviously, and so I very much admired your hair.
1: Well, more that, you're that, interviewing the, though. The point I was making up front, and perhaps in a slightly humorous vein, yeah, uh, was th- was that this was just another symptom of how superficial the medium is, mm. and that kind of celebrity side of it, and people being concerned more about how you look than what you say. And uh, and in fact, um, I highlighted in that sentence that that sentence that uh, I had one uh, newspaper television writer. Um, who came to interview me once very early in the 7.30 years, uh, uh, whose first question was, do you dye your hair? And (laughs) I said no. And she said, do you mind if I look?
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's a bit much. (laughs) I
1: said, well, if you must. (laughs) And she actually came over and parted my hair and had a close inspection of the roots and Mm. said, you don't. As if she was utterly convinced that she was going to find me out. And her nickname was the Killer Tomato amongst her colleagues because she had developed this technique. She thought, of coming up with the killer question first up to throw the interviewer, uh, or the interviewee rather, off their mm. uh, off their game. So, um, I'm sure, it wouldn't have worked. But you know, the ABC ABC makeup artists, year after year after year, had to fend this question. Does Kerry die? his here? <laughs> I eventually worked out what it was, um, because I was doing the program. We would take the program around the country through the various states and uh, you can't have the same perfect... You might have your lighting set up on the same grid plan, but 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 not every light in every city uh, was exactly the same. So the lighting, the lighting of the show in Brisbane might have been subtly different to the lighting in Sydney or the lighting in Melbourne or the lighting in Adelaide, and that would then bounce off my hair and it would take on different tones. Different tones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sort of sailing along semi-oblivious of all this but um, no it was said in humour and it was said to make the point. Yes. It is a superficial medium and too many people get caught up by the the kind of the showbiz side mm. of it.
0: And it's a very good point point. and it made me a little bit relieved in a way that it wasn't just women getting comments about their appearance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fair enough. show. <Touché>. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Kerry O'Brien, it's been amazing to speak with you and uh, I commend you on this book. It's really a, a great lesson in history.
1: Amy, thank you very much and you obviously did your legwork. Yes, yeah. I thank did you. And, and I enjoyed it. Wonderful, thank you. <laughs> Pleasure.